Welcome to God, Yay or Nay. I'm your host, Noor Kidwai. I'm here to find out how we grow, transform, and become our best selves. How we create meaning in our lives. Come join me on my journey. Hey everybody, it's Noor Kidwai here with God, Yay or Nay. Uh, thank you for tuning in to another episode. Uh, this episode, my guest is Ali Rizvi. Ali is the author of The Atheist Muslim. It's a wonderful book. Please check it out. He's also a physician, and he's also a writer for the Huffington Post. This is a great episode. I hope you guys enjoy it. And I just want to thank everybody for uh, my support for the podcast. It's constantly growing. I appreciate that. Uh, the best way you can support, and I really do appreciate uh, when you can go to things like iTunes, subscribe to the podcast, give it a good rating, maybe even leave a message. That's the best way you can support, and it helps out a ton with uh, more exposure. Uh, and uh, yeah, like I said, I'm constantly getting uh, new guests and uh, trying to get the most compelling podcasts up and you guys are awesome. Uh, thanks so much and uh, let's get into this episode. My guest this week, Ali Rizvi. Uh, hey everybody, welcome to another episode of God Yay or Nay. Uh, today we got from the author of The Atheist Muslim, Ali Rizvi. Uh, Ali, thanks for joining us, man. It's a pleasure, Noor. Thank you. <laughs> hey, buddy. Uh, so I have to say your uh, book was such an influential book uh, in my life. I loved it so much. Um, I want to, can you give our uh, audience a little bit of a background, man, of uh, where you come from? I know you uh, were raised in Saudi Arabia, did school out in uh, Pakistan. So maybe just a little bit of a background for our audience. Yeah, man. I was, uh, so I was born in Pakistan um, uh, a long time ago in the 70s. I'm an old man. Uh, and then after that, I think when I was like six or seven months old, we moved to Tripoli, Libya. So I grew up partially in, in Libya, and then I grew up mostly in Saudi Arabia. Uh, went to school there, went to high school there, uh, and then I went back to Pakistan where I went to medical school. And then after that, uh, when I was 24, I came to Canada. So uh, for 24 years of my life, I was in um, Libya, Saudi Arabia, and Pakistan. You know, those three countries and you know what that does is you know you're on it's it's sort of it's very very different cultures um those are all of those countries are muslim majority countries but they're culturally very different so you see a lot of interplay of languages and religions and, and the way that people live so you develop you naturally develop an interest in international issues politics the way that people relate to each other how everybody thinks that their belief is the right one and um you know, you, you get a sort of bird's eye view of, of how uh, everything works, all of these sort of social political dynamics. And um, I just became very interested in that. And then when I came to Canada, I came to Canada, I moved here finally, I think in 1999. Later, after 9-11 happened, you know, a lot of the things I'd grown up with, suddenly they were out in the mainstream, they're in the headlines, and everybody was talking about things from their own point of view. And I thought, I was like, well, maybe I have a perspective here to share that other people aren't looking at, you know, and that's how I got into writing, and first I started writing blogs, then op-eds, and uh, eventually ended up uh, writing the book. Yeah, no yeah. kidding. Um, and, like, how you were saying your perspective, uh, you do have, like, a unique perspective that um, when I started following you, maybe in, like, 2015-ish, I noticed mm -hmm. that uh, your perspective was one that wasn't really out there. Like we had like 
almost two different sides of the story, especially when it came, like, that was when, like, ISIS was on the rise and, like, uh, like that whole, like, uh, Islam was just kind of central news, right? And, uh, yeah, there was, like, two different uh, sides of the story that you got almost from, like, right-wing politics to left-wing politics, and you had something kind of sort of down the middle. Uh, I don't know if you want to explain a little bit of that. Yeah, so that's... Um, I, I just noticed that every time the topic of Islam you had it became a politicizing like, everything is left and right now you have this coronavirus even that is a polarized issue which is absolutely insane like, i don't understand how that happens but but what happened was on the on the left you know the people were and i and i lean left liberal but um so this was my side and this particularly bothered me that they thought that okay any criticism you have of islam means you have you're a bigot against all muslims so anything Anything you question about the religion, anything that you have you find problematic about the religion, um, that means that all you think that all Muslims are bad. Now, on the other hand, on the right, you have this idea that well, you know, a bunch of Muslims they do terrible things. That means that all Muslims must be profiled. They must be banned. They must be surveilled. You know, there. So there is a a whole sort of outright bigotry, actual bigotry issue on the right, and. I thought that there was a middle ground. The middle ground was that there's a difference between Islam, which is an idea, right? It's a, it's a set of beliefs in a book, um, and Muslims who are people, right? So Islam is an ideology. Muslim is kind of an identity. It's a personal identity. So um, what happens is that, you know, when you, when you criticize Islam or you say that, okay, there's, there's a verse in the Quran that says that you can beat your wife. Well, I have a problem with that. You say that. You're not saying that that means all Muslims are wife beaters. You know, you're not like using a blanket statement against a whole group of people. Uh, what you're doing is you're criticizing ideas. And ideas don't have rights. Ideas don't have feelings. Ideas are not necessarily entitled to respect. And it's, um, we challenge our ideas. That's how we move forward. Islam itself was a challenge of the status quo. So I tell people, <laughs> I like, just follow Sunnah. I mean, if you're going to, what I'm doing, and they're like, why are you criticizing Islam so much? It's blasphemous. I'm like, well, you know, I, it's Sunnah. That's, that's what, what the Prophet Muhammad apparently did, is that he challenged all of the religious people around him. He was the biggest blasphemer of all yeah, to the Quran. That's true. And uh, so I'm just following his example, man. So <laughs> oh, that's an interesting way that's, to put it. <laughs> yeah, actually, the whole... Um separation of uh, identity and ideology that was actually one thing that uh, I it really resonated with me I think um, especially like I don't know I wouldn't consider myself really an atheist but I definitely won't I'm not really much of a believer in religion too much and uh, right. but I can't escape the whole uh, Muslim identity eh? like that's always going to be with me even if I tell my friends like yeah I don't really believe in anything I'm still their Muslim friend right yeah and that's the thing, you know, when people say, well, you know, how could you said make the separation because Muslims isn't a Muslim, somebody who believes in Islam. I'm like, yeah, 1400 years ago, that was a definition. But now when Gallup does its polls or Pew Research, they do their polls and they say in 2050, uh, Muslims will be the largest religious group in the world. Mm -hmm. you know, they make that projection. How did they know? Like, who are they talking about? Are they talking about people who convert to Islam? Are they talking? No, they're, they're talking about kids born in Muslim families. They're looking at growth rates, which is what you do for an identity. Now, there's no such thing as a Muslim baby. I mean, there are many, every former Muslim I know, every Muslim I know who became an agnostic or became an atheist, they all had Muslim parents. Mm. So they're not necessarily accounting for that. Like when, when 
Donald Trump says that, okay, we're going to ban immigration from like seven or eight Muslim countries or Muslim majority countries. There are, there are millions of people in those countries who don't believe in anything, who are not religious Muslims. But he's using the term Muslim as an identity. And I think that that is, there are many Muslims who've never read the Quran. They don't know anything about Islam. They don't know anything. Uh, but they, they call themselves Muslim because their parents are Muslim. They came from a Muslim family. Um, that's the case with a vast majority of Muslims. So Muslim has become kind of a birth identity in a way. Uh, so, you know, it's, uh, and that brings up a lot of dynamics. It's, it's interesting when people say, well, criticizing Islam isn't racism. Well, you know, when you demonize Muslims, well, that can be a kind of bigotry. So all of those conversations become very relevant when you think about it that way. Um, and I'll, I'll give you an example of how this really plays out is there is a, there's a big conversation about, uh, hijab and, and burqa nowadays, right? Yeah. So, um, hijab is a head covering that Muslim, a lot of Muslim women wear for, for uh, modesty reasons, um, a controversial thing. But, uh, you know, th there's a lot of young women I know uh, and I have corresponded with who uh, wear the hijab and they, they, they don't like it. They're, their parents made them wear it. They grew up and they have, they've had this argument with their parents that, you know, we don't want to wear it. Where in the Quran does it say clearly that you have to wear it? It's not a necessity. So they're having this sort of argument, this conversation with their parents internally within their Muslim families um, because they don't want to wear it. They want to be normal like all the other high school, all their friends, and you know they want to do things with their hair, whatever it is. But then when you know someone like Donald Trump comes and says, okay, we're going to ban all Muslims entering the country like he did in 2015 when he was running, when he says that, then suddenly all of these girls who wear the hijab, they say, no, screw you. I'm going to keep it on because then... Now it's become a symbol of identity. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Now they're becoming. So first it was an ideological. So it was. It was it a choice for them. It wasn't an ideological choice for them. But when it comes to their sense of identity, it becomes a choice. So, so these conversations are. I think that we tend to look at them in a very black and white way, uh, but there is a lot of gray. There's a lot of nuances. A lot of other um, dynamics that are involved when people talk about these things. Mm -hmm. No, that's yeah. uh, that's a very interesting point you actually pointed out there. Um, so uh, I think like a lot about your book and stuff is like you want to see like uh, some sort of secularization come to Islam. Is that true? Uh, yeah, and, uh, uh, I mean secularization. I think you got to remember what secular is. Secularism means that it's just a separation of religion and state. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so in most Western countries now you have we have uh, that. Yeah separation of religion and state religion has its own sphere and it's not involved in politics and this is the best way to ensure uh freedom of expression for everybody and it's also the best way to ensure religious freedom yeah if you're in a secular society yeah exactly so, so you can express whatever your religion is you can practice your religion freely it's the best way to to do it so i i think that um, in a lot of Muslim majority countries, yeah, I absolutely think I think that they there would be a lot of progress. It would be much better if uh, the affairs of the religion were separate from the affairs of the state. Okay, so uh, from you being from a lot of those countries, and uh, I assume you uh, know a lot of people who actually uh, promote these ideas. Like, um, can you tell us, like, do you do you have an optimistic uh, vision of the future when it comes to like secularization in these countries? Yeah, I think I, 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 am, I am actually optimistic based on what I've seen since I started doing this work. And also before that, if you look at the trajectory, 
in the last just 30 years. I think it was just a little over 30 years ago that Salman Rushdie wrote a book and he had to go into hiding for 10 years. Amazing okay. book. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then, and then, and then uh, you know, as recently as 2006, as recently as 2015, you had uh, people who were murdered for making cartoons uh, of, of the Prophet Muhammad. Now it's, uh, it's become normalized. Like if you look at it, I'm talking to you, we're having this conversation openly. Uh, there are so many uh, people from the Muslim world who publicly identify as atheists, including public personalities like like Aziz Ansari, for instance. Yeah. Right? Uh, especially in the comedy community. So, yeah, you yeah. Know, you, there's a, it's a big thing. Um, you know, people are just more open about it. There are more conferences. There are more uh, sort of people from the Muslim world who are speaking up about it. So, and I, uh, there have been then there are numbers to it. So. You know, Gallup did a poll, I think, in 2012, 2013, almost 10 years ago, uh, where they found, when they did a, a study of religiosity around the world, and they found that in Saudi Arabia, remember, Saudi Arabia is a birthplace of Islam. Yeah, That's okay, then. where Muslims face every day when they pray, you know. So over here, in Saudi Arabia, it's a country of about 26 million people, I think, um, 5% of respondents said that they are convinced atheists, but confirmed atheists. So not just non-religious, 19% of Saudis said that they were non-religious and 5% said that they were atheists. Now, to put that in perspective, in Italy, same question in Italy, 15% said that they were non-religious. Oh, wow. <laughs> a higher percentage in Saudi Arabia that are non-religious than, than in Italy. And uh, the number of confirmed atheists, 5% is the same as it is in the US. Uh, there was another poll done by a Kurdish uh, polling agency called AK News um, in Iraq that showed that 7% of people in Iraq identified as atheists. So that is between Iraq and Saudi Arabia alone. That's about three and a half million people who said that they were atheists. And they reported this in a place that is probably underreported because people don't like to say that, first of all. And um, it is, I mean, these are astounding numbers. And this is almost 10 years ago. Uh, so I, I think that just the idea of, and I'm not saying everybody has to be an atheist, but the idea of secularization and challenging ideas of religion, um, this has been a, uh, it has really, you know, sort of exponentially grown, especially since since the internet, since, since social media. Um, when I was growing up in Saudi Arabia, we didn't have access to anything, right? We didn't, the, all of the magazines were censored. Like I remember when, uh, and I've told the story uh, before in other places, is that when they shot Malcolm X, you know, the movie with Denzel Washington. Yeah. So Denzel Washington and Spike Lee, they came to Mecca to shoot in the city of Mecca. Now, non-Muslims are not allowed in Mecca, but uh, they, the Saudis allowed them in, and we didn't hear of it. We had no idea. We were living in Saudi Arabia. We had no idea. Then I went to Pakistan for the summer, and then I saw over there that, you know, Malcolm X had been shot in Mecca, and we just hadn't received that news at all because they just didn't. Oh, wow. This is before the internet. You can't hide things like that anymore. The people there who have been in that kind of closed society, who had no idea what was going on outside the world, now have a, a sort of a portal to the outside world. They're learning about other people with other ideas, and uh, it's uh, it's amazing. It's kind of what... The printing press did with Christianity, you know, back in the dark ages. Yeah. Uh, the internet is sort of doing that with uh, with the Muslim world, especially Muslim youth. 
Oh, that's so cool. So I'm optimistic. Yeah, that's yeah. that's the answer. Yeah, that's a great answer. I honestly, I didn't uh, like even some of those Gallup polls you were telling me about. I I've never heard those ones, so those numbers surprised mm -hmm. me as well. Uh, that's yeah. actually, uh, yeah, no, I'm I'm actually really happy with those numbers. Um, so can you uh, tell me a little bit about uh, Saudi Arabia, like growing up there, because. Uh, I, I, I find I find Saudi Arabia so interesting, like when you the more you hear about it, but like even now I'm kind of understanding that a lot of what I hear is just media. So I might just be like hearing a lot of uh, like just biases and stuff. So maybe you can give us a yeah. little idea of what it was like growing up there. It was weird because like they, uh, when people covered it in here, when they wrote about Saudi Arabia in the West, it was always thought of as this moderate country. Well, Saudi Arabia is moderate, but uh, you know, uh, Iraq is a fanatical country, right? That, that's how they said that Iraq was a problem. Saudi, but it was exactly the opposite. Saudi Arabia is essentially like the Taliban with a lot of money. Oh. Right? So, so it. Um, I, I don't even know where to start. So everything that you hear about women is true, and it's probably worse. Uh, so uh, men over there typically have multiple wives. Uh, the, this is again w when I was living there. Um, the women have to be covered. They have to at least have their hair covered when they go out in public. They're not allowed to go out without their hair covered. Uh, now women are beginning to drive there. At that time, women were not allowed to drive. And so we always had to get other transport. Uh, for for example, my mother was a professor, a university professor and a teacher. And uh, she had to be driven to work uh, by men who had didn't even have close to the education level that she had. So it's because she had to be apparently taken care of. So yeah. well, that was one of the situations. There's a lot of uh, uh, an Arab superiority issue. I mean, the state is it's uh, state-sponsored racism in a sense. My father uh, was a professor, and he taught at the King Saud University in Riyadh. Uh, he had a Pakistani passport. Uh, so the people who had American passports, like the Americans, would get paid for doing the exact same job, about twice what he did. Um, so they used to they used to give you your salary based on what your nationality is. Oh wow! So, so the Bangladeshis, the Filipinos, the Pakistanis, Indians, they would get uh, a less a lower salary. Uh, the Americans, the Europeans, would get higher salary for the exact same job, and then the um, the uh, Saudis would obviously get the most. So there's a um, I mean those are just some of the things. Yeah, uh, it was very secure. Like people would not, I mean, it wasn't secure in, in other ways, but in terms of bodily security, nobody would really rob you because if someone robbed you, uh, you know, they'd get their hand cut off. Yeah. Uh, in the center of Riyadh, there was a marketplace, an old marketplace. In the middle of that, there was a big square that we called Chop Chop Square. Uh, you can look it up online. So everybody called it Chop Chop Square. And that's where they had the public beheadings. So everything from people uh, accused of, well, you know, people convicted of murder, convicted in quotes, because they never really had a proper justice or trial system. Uh, if you killed somebody, you'd get your head cut off. If you dealt drugs, you'd get your head cut off. Sorcery, they thought that you were guilty of <laughs> sorcery, sorcery or witchcraft. <laughs> oh, yeah, there were people there who had their heads cut off for sorcery. Uh, they would do, yeah, they, they, just the whole place was... And when you're growing up there, we were relatively sheltered from it because we were foreigners and I was a kid, frankly. So I didn't have did, did too you ever, much at stake. Did you ever see a public beheaded? Oh, man. Uh, no, but uh, we got close. When they do that, they don't announce it. A lot of times 
uh, what the Saudis do is that they take the foreigners, anybody who's a foreigner in the market, they'll kind of push them up front so they can see because they want to show them. Um, people will throw things or they will spit uh, there. And But I, uh, no, I, uh, you know, they just move me away. I never um, ended up getting caught in that, fortunately. Uh, my parents were very protective of us and, and to the extent that my parents are professors, they, they were religious, but they would ask us, they're like, you know, can you, if we ask questions about the religion, like, you know, why are we doing this? Is this right? If we had any doubts or skepticism, they welcome the questioning, but they tell us, make sure you don't say this to anybody else. Make oh, sure you don't wow. say So, because if I told somebody and that friend told their father and that father reported them, then they'd basically take my father away. So. Oh, it was that bad. Yeah, it was really, I mean, it's, um, it was really crazy. The, the, Good things, I mean, I guess good relatively, uh, was that um, just a, a lot of the myths about it, there's no, I mean, there, there were stores where you could get CDs and tapes and uh, music. You, you didn't have, there were no cinemas there. There were no public concerts, nothing like that. You couldn't do anything like that. Um, but you could do it in private. Um, there is no religious freedom, so you can't wear a cross. If you wear a cross and you're Christian, uh, you're not allowed to do that. Uh, you, there were no churches. Uh, there are no, um, you know, there, there are only Sunni mosques. If you're Shia, then you have to hide and do all your stuff in the house. Um, you can't be caught because sometimes they would raid you. Mm. Yeah, so, you know, a lot of things like that. Every, everything you hear about it, the, the bad stuff is pretty much yeah, true. Yeah, it's pretty much exactly what it is. Yeah, yeah. Well, like I heard a lot of those it's kind of worse, stories. So. And yeah, you're, you're the way you're describing it, I'm like, holy shit, man. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so well, um, when you were growing up there, like you were saying you questioned religion a little bit growing up. Uh, were, so were you ever like at all that religious or like, what, did religion ever take a hold of you? I, I went in and out of it. Uh, so, you know, when I was a kid, I was sort of liberally religious. I was never a sort of fundamentalist. Um, like, so I basically listened to my parents, what they were. They were sort of more progressive and liberal educated religion, Muslims. So I was kind of like that. I did learn how to read the Quran. I liked all the rituals. I loved the Ramadan, all of the, yeah, the yeah. iftaris and the food and, and Eid. And, you know, I used to, so I used to be really involved in those celebrations. Um, I still am, actually. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. And then... Uh, but, you know, in terms of belief, yes, I believe there were times, you know, I used to pray, uh, I used to try to get into it, but I always used to try to make sense of it in some way. So there are times I was very skeptical, other times I weren't. My my younger brother, I think from the age of eight, he just saw all this stuff and he thought, well, you know, maybe it's something that grown-ups do. He's like, it doesn't make any sense to me, but I guess when I'm older, maybe I'll believe in it. <laughs> That's what he used to think. And turned out that he was right. So, uh yeah, so, so I dabbled in it. I tried to justify it. I used to look at the... My problem was I used to... They used to tell me that the Quran. They used to talk about the Quran. Then I read the Quran. So I was the only one I knew who read it. My dad hadn't read it. My mother hadn't read it. And I read... I couldn't go online. There was no online. So I used to get these paperbacks and I used to read it and I used to find all this weird stuff in there. I'd ask my parents. They'd never have any answers for me. Um, so it was a very started seeding some some doubt in there. I think I was always somewhat skeptical. Okay, so that's kind of where yeah. your questioning uh, started to begin when you actually read the Quran? Yeah, that's yeah. A good place to start the questioning, right? Uh, 
It actually started, I think, when I was five, and I, I wrote about this in the book, that I had a younger cousin who was three years old, and she had leukemia, childhood leukemia, which at that time didn't really have a cure. And, you know, when, when she was dying, they, they brought her in the room, and we were all, this was in England, we were all there, and I was standing with my dad, and it was a terrible scene, because this three-year-old is dying of cancer, and, you know, cancer pain, it, you know, even 80-year-olds get you know, it's it's torturous for them. Yeah, so yeah. it's the same kind of thing in a three-year-old. And she's gasping and she's in agony. And I was watching that and I remembered very clearly. And I asked my father, I was like, what's happening? And my father said, oh, God, Allah is taking her back. He's taking her away. So I looked at it. I was like, wow, this is pretty bad. Why is he doing that? You know, and then I saw my, my uh, her mother and, and my mom, you know, reading the Quran by her side and crying. And I said, why, what are they doing? They're like, they're praying to Allah. They're saying, please don't take her away. Mm. I'm thinking, well, who is this Allah guy? Like, why doesn't he, either you can end it really quick, like this three-year-old kid, you know, or, or they're like, why, what's with this tug of war? It's like, and it, it just seemed like, I was like, this guy is a sadist. Yeah. Like, that was my first impression. That was my very first impression of, of God. Uh, later on, I found out, I was like, oh, he's apparently good. Okay, all right, okay. And I tried to, but then everything, everything I saw from then, I used to think, you know, when Ziaul Haq, the president of Pakistan, died in a crash, a, a plane explosion in 1988. Mm -hmm. I don't know, are you originally Pakistani, Indian? Or? Uh, Pakistani, yeah. I don't I, know that story. Okay. That's a little before my time. <laughs> So I'm, where, okay. I, I'm from, uh, I was born in Calgary, but uh, yeah, my dad's uh, Pakistani. So where did you live in, uh, where was your dad from in Pakistan? Uh, Lahore. And, oh, she's yeah, awesome. Lahore and Karachi. Yeah, it's the same city. I, I, yeah, so 1988, like this guy, he dies in an explosion and a crash, and they, they say, well, there's a miracle, a miracle happened. What's a miracle? There was a little copy of the Quran that was untouched. It survived in the plane. And I was thinking, so everybody was talking about it like it's this huge miracle. And I'm thinking there are 32 people who died on that plane. Oh, wow. That exploded, but, you know, God decided to save a book. I'm like, eh, it sounds like a lot like that original Allah that I thought of when I was five. <laughs> it just didn't, it did, a lot of it didn't make sense. So I, Actually, you know what, the way you describe that, uh, it reminds me of like the exact same way I first questioned religion. Um, it, it was at a mosque when I was younger, and I remember my dad was talking to somebody who just lost his job, uh, just going through a horrible time, but I remember the guy was just saying, well, oh, this is Allah's will, this is Allah's will, like, and all that stuff, and I just kept thinking to myself, like, like, what are you talking about? Like, your life's in the dumps <laughs> right now, like... To stop saying that and go do something about it. like I don't know. That's yeah. not how my like younger self kind of thought about it, but um, it is kind of funny how like kids can actually sometimes like see through religion just by like they almost just think completely logically just by looking at it, right? Yeah, yeah, um, it is. I think I think it's very obvious a lot of times. Like there's this, you know, you're saying you're praying before uh, you eat. You're like, oh, thank you, God, for giving us all this food. And God's like, oh, you know, that's not, I'll, I'll say you're welcome, but first let me go and give all of these kids in Africa cancer, you know, and then I'll, I'll come stay. <laughs> the whole priority system is just messed up. But. No, it is a little uh, crazy. Um, so, like, my podcast, I call it God, Yay or Nay, so I usually ask that, but I'm pretty sure you're going to give a nay if I'm not, <laughs> if I'm correct. 
Well, it's a complicated question. So, I mean, it depends what it you is. mean by it. Is. Yeah, it depends what you mean by God. When you talk about God as the theistic God who answers your prayers and, you know, is, you know, intervenes in human affairs and blesses some people and, you know, all of that, that God is, I, it's a nay. I'm pretty certain of that. Uh, if you're talking about like a general sort of force in the universe and intelligence in the universe or uh, maybe even some sort of um, higher intelligence, something that we don't understand, that we can't comprehend, uh, the, for, for that, like a, or like a pantheistic type thing, then yeah, yeah. I'd be agnostic about it. I'm like, okay, I'm 50-50. Okay. You know, yeah, that, that was actually going to be my uh, next question. So like, do you yeah. have a kind of a spiritual side to you at all? Like uh, any kind of uh, trying to find some uh, greater meaning or anything? I, you know, my view is I am, uh, I'm, I'm a physician and a scientist by profession. I've been in this career for decades now. And um, I think that that is the best. If you want, I, I tell, I tell my sort of little religious cousins, nieces and nephews uh, this as well, that, you know, if you want to study God, if you want to get close to God, supposing you believe in God, you want to get close to God. What are you going to do? You study his creation, right? Mm -hmm. What did he create? You look around. The Quran says, you know, look around you, look at what God created. So you look around you, and that's nature. Nature is all around you. The universe is nature. All of that is nature. And you study it. And that has a name. The study of nature is called science, oh, right? Okay. And science is, uh, you know, like if I, if I want to know you better, like Noor Kidwai, I want to know who you are. You know, and then you're long gone. I can't see you. I'm going to read the books that you wrote. I'm going to look at the the comedy that you did mm -hmm. in the stand up routines. I uh, might go to your room and see, you know, what you left, what kind of things you like. That's how I'm going to get to know you, right? Um, so th this is this is a study of nature is called science. And and what is the language of that? Language of nature isn't Arabic. It's not Aramaic. It's not Hebrew. It's not Greek. Uh, the language of nature is mathematics. Right, mm -hmm. that mathematics it doesn't change wherever you are. It's a universal language. It works everywhere. It's intuitive. Everybody understands it. So for me, the the spiritual things, the things I I, I want to know, uh, if you want to call it spiritual, is just these transcendent experiences. Uh, when I was younger, I would look up at the sky, and I remember being stunned. I was stunned for months when I found out that I was looking at the sky. I wasn't just looking in the distance but I was looking back in time, right? Because all of those stars are, some of them are millions of light years away. So I'm actually looking at them the way they looked millions of years ago because you know, the light hadn't gotten my eyes yet. That's something that totally blew my mind. So everything could be completely different now, but I'm looking at it at a time when, you know, it was, when humanity, nobody existed as we knew it. And, and so just the idea that we're looking back in time and looking at the sky, um, I'd look at the moon. I think, wow, we've been there. That's amazing. You know, you and these experiences in life. When you listen to music, you listen to a really good kawali. I know that's counterintuitive, but you know, you listen to a nice sort of blasphemous Urdu kawali like "Yehalka Halka Surur" by Nusrat Fatali Khan, or you know, something like that, and it just takes you to this place. And you're um, right, so that to me is a spiritual transcendent experience. Uh, if I'm with my daughter and my daughter wakes me up in the morning and we sit and we talk and, you know, we're just I'm spending time with her. That to me is a transcended, uh, you know, she's three years old and 
it's one of my favorite times of the day. And for me, that is something, you know, well beyond. It's something I try to understand, like the, the love between, you know, a father and his children. These things feel intangible to me, but I think there's so much spiritual fulfillment and, you know, a beautiful movie, a beautiful painting, music, um, being in love with somebody, uh, studying how embryology works, or science, science, you know, learning about theoretical physics, like all of these things are so. There's so many transcendental spiritual um, experiences in natural life that I've never really felt like I have to go beyond it. Like that's more than enough. Hey, I lo I love that, and uh, the whole idea of like uh, saying your spirituality comes from experience. Like I, I'm, I'm kind of like on the same board as, as that, and I, yeah, no, I love right. that, and that, uh, especially with science, how you said the whole uh, feeling of awe, like I, like that whole feeling of awe when you look at the sky or when you when you're studying something. Like uh, I do, the, I think that's beautiful. I, uh, my one of my favorite scientists, Carl Sagan, like how he always used to. Yeah talk so beautifully about the universe and like he made it so poetic that uh, you just listened to him and it uh, filled you up with this feeling where you were just uh yeah you were motivated to learn more about the universe and uh no i hey i love that uh, answer man um i also actually wanted to ask you this so i, I hear like a lot of like um let's say intellectuals and even philosophers from back in the day they would they talk about how since the whole idea of like especially in the western world how they say like god is dead and they say there's like a meaning crisis um in the world like where people are having now trouble because they they don't have a god which would something that would give them meaning uh do you think this is there's any kind of truth to this that like people are having trouble finding meaning in life right now that's why we see a lot of like maybe mental illness or depression or we see a lot of like politics and like dis divisive like uh ideologies kind of popping up like do you think there's any truth to that at all yeah i think i think there's a lot of truth to it and I think that there's a, an evolutionary truth to it. Oh, sorry, hold on. Oh, you're, you're recording this, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah, okay. There's, um, yeah, sorry about that. There's, a, um, there's an evolutionary truth to it. So the way that, you know, human beings evolve, you know, homo sapiens is that we evolve to have long-term memory. A lot of other species, lower species, you know, they, they don't have long-term memory. They just have short-term memory. Um, and... and when you have long a conscious sort of long-term memory, uh, you immediately can start making goals. You can make goals. Uh, you can, based on past experience, you can make future things that you want to achieve, that you want to do. Not just in the short term that I want to find a maid, I want to find food, I want to get, you know, I'm hungry, I have to go to the bathroom. Not just that, but just long-term actualization goals. Uh, and when you do that, the, the, the whole idea of purpose and meaning is inherent in that. That's where our need for meaning comes from. So it is a consequence of us evolving to develop long-term memory, long-term and, and, and perspective. Uh, we have that capacity to make, prospectively make long-term goals. So um, it's very natural for people to want to find some kind of purpose, some kind of meaning in life. And a lot of times it doesn't make sense. Why am I doing this? Why am I here? Um, what am I meant to do in life? And uh, that is something that religion very um, adequately answered, like more than adequately. It, it tapped in on that immediately 
okay, and it gave them a purpose. Mm -hmm. When people are sort of lost, uh, they can find purpose in all kinds of things. Uh, people are so desperate for meaning. That's how, if you study how cults are formed, you know, people join cults, even completely irrational cults. You know, that, that's how it happens. Why do people join ISIS? A lot of times, even people who aren't that religious, they went ISIS. They joined ISIS because it, it gave them purpose. It gave them a sense of identity, right? And something that they, uh, some sense of meaning. So I, I think that that is very important. And, and I, I should say, this is one of the uh, sort of things that we should be critical of ourselves in the skeptic community and in the atheist agnostic uh, community is that uh, we don't do such a good job of that. You know, we tend to think, oh, just rational ideas is going to work. You, know, you, you can't tell a mother who just lost her child to leukemia, to cancer, that, well, you know, that's it. There's nothing else out there. Deal with it because we have to deal with reality. You have to accept reality. You can't do that. Mm -hmm. You know? There's something, um, reason and rationality are, are good and they're important, but human beings are not necessarily uh, reasonable and rational people. We, we know that yeah. in abundance. Yeah, 100%. Right? So, so uh, there has to be something, and there are ways to tell stories. There are, like, you know, what I'm talking about with spiritual fulfillment, um, the natural experiences you can have in life that, that give you that transcendental experience. And you, you know, you, you can you can address that in my book. In the last chapter, I talk about how a friend of mine wrote to me after her father died, and uh, she said, and she's religious, she's Muslim, and she said, "Well, what do you do? You know, if you're an atheist, what do you do? He's just in the ground, and he's done." And then I I really thought about it, and I said, "You know, this is an important question uh, for people who are not religious and uh, who are talking about this to answer for people. That you know, what are you going to do? Are you going to give me?" Is there any comfort that I can get through the truth, through reality, through what we know? And there are several ways you can. There's many things that you can think of. But there are ways you can talk about this and provide that sense of meaning for people who um, who are not religious. But I and I think we need to put more effort into that. Hey man, that's an amazing answer. Uh, thanks, buddy. That's uh, no. I ought to say that's a. Uh... Uh, especially uh, that's always been my kind of criticism about atheism as well is that they uh, it did seem to have like a lack of meaning and it, I felt it didn't uh, provide anything for uh, people and like the way you answered it uh, hey that's beautiful buddy <laughs> yeah I'll tell I'll tell you something like when my when my father died I think it was in it was in 2001 it was a long time ago I remember my um, uncle my mother's oldest brother was here and he's always been sort of an Totally. He was the atheist of the family. Like, everybody's praying. He's like, yeah, I don't want to pray. I don't, this, this is just, he was very, he's like, this is bullshit. You know, what are you guys doing? He was very um, vocal about it. He was the oldest. You know, we're Pakistani, and you know what happens. The oldest person gets the respect, no matter what. So this guy, and then I asked him at the time, I was like, you know, so am I going to see my dad again? How's he, you know, what are you going to tell me as an atheist? You know, if I'm religious and I'm looking forward to one day meeting him again in the afterlife, what are you going to tell me? And he just told me one thing. He's like, he's alive through you. He's like 50% of his, like his, his genes, his essence, everything, his actual biological essence is living through you. He's still here. He's left. And that completely changed everything. I don't know why. I have no idea why. But when I heard that, there was some, there was a tremendous amount of comfort in there. That, you know, okay, well, 
he's always here. Like I, I am his, his biological essence. It's me. I'm his genetic essence. It's so things like that, you know, when, and, and there are things like that that we can think of that can be really, really profound and that are actually true. You know, they're not just uh, fairy tales and they can provide a lot of meaning and a lot of comfort to people in these kinds of times. Oh, wow. Yeah, that uh, I've actually heard that, too, from parents. Like, I'm, I don't have any kids, but I know, like, uh, people, when they say, like, when they look at their kids uh, or when they did have kids, they can actually look at them and it does give you that uh, kind of comfort, like, almost like, all right, like, I don't want to die. But, like, if it happened, like, something is, like, there's something, like, a little bit more complete in me now, right? Like, yeah. I know, I know uh, something's uh, passing on or living uh, after me about myself. That, that, that's uh, Yeah, man, it's... Yeah, it's weird. It doesn't make complete sense. It feels, but there's something about it that feels uh, right. I haven't figured it out what it is, but um, it's there. And I think that you know, it's it's the kind of thing that I think we should we can talk about a lot more. Yeah, hey man, that's why I started this uh, podcast. I want to kind of yeah, talk I love about it. This things and uh, yeah, like I don't know, I uh, I kind of uh, went a little bit. Uh, so when I went into university, I that's what I kind of went through my George Carlin, uh, Christopher yeah. Hitchens phase, and like I uh, was like the hardcore atheist for about five years, and then uh, after school, I kind of like, yeah, I kind of came back, and I was like, uh, I needed I, something was missing, I needed more, and uh, that's where I kind of became a little bit more spiritual and kind of got into like meditation and stuff like that that uh, actually was kind of searching for more in an experience and like how you were mm -hmm. talking about experience that um because i agree like in a in a way like i need to have some sort of experience for me to be like okay this is something i can put my belief into or my faith into like at least there's an experience there i can't do it in like uh stories that i don't believe in or like shit like that so um, yeah yeah, no, uh, that, that, that's really cool. Uh, so when, when you, you seem like you come from a very, like, liberal family then, like, uh, did you ever have any issues then when you uh, started coming out with this book and, uh, you know, like, when you started coming out as, like, an atheist? I bet, like, I can't oh, see yeah. that being too easy. Oh, my, my parents actually also evolved as we grew up. Uh, when we were younger, I th I would say they were more conservative. Um, and as we grew older... Uh, they became a little bit more liberal and progressive, and a lot of that had to do with the kids growing up. They were, again, they're university professors, both of them, so they really encouraged us to engage them in dialogue. We could ask questions. Everything was, we were always debating everything. You know, the people would come to our house, they'd think, oh, these guys are fighting. We weren't fighting. They were just having passionate arguments, and then after that, everybody would get along. So that's something that was very much uh, a part of my family. Uh, so... Later on, when I started talking about all the stuff that, you know, I'm not religious, what is this challenging religion and, and all of that, uh, it, it annoyed my mother and it made her concerned for my security back at that time. Uh, she didn't really discourage it. She didn't try to talk me out of it. She's like, oh, well, if you don't believe, you don't believe, but just don't annoy people all the time. You don't have to talk about it all the time. I was like, okay, I won't talk about it. I'll just start writing about it. And that really helped because once I started writing about it and I just putting my stuff out there, I didn't feel like I had to talk about it all the time. You know, I, it didn't, I wasn't as angry. I felt like, okay, the ideas are out there and I can focus on other things. I can talk to people about the kind of stuff they like to talk about, like barbecues and shoes and you know, that other shit. <laughs> so um, 
so when I uh, when I eventually started getting a bit of a following, and then uh, when I had the book deal, uh, then uh, my mom became very encouraging. She said, "You know, this is great. Good luck on your book." I'm like, "Well, I'm basically you understand everything about all the stuff I said that used to annoy the shit out of you before is I'm just putting that in a book." So now you're going to have it and everybody's going to read and everybody's going to be able to be annoyed. And, but it didn't matter because now it was, a, it was a book. So it was official. And the day that the book came out, my mom called me. She said, congratulations. You know, your book was launched today and, you know, inshallah, it will do very well. So, a, so my book, The Atheist Muslim, completely, yeah, completely like excoriates religion and Islam and everything. She said, oh, inshallah, it'll do very well. And I told her, I was like, I needed, you should have told me this a month ago and I would have put it on the cover. Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> so, yeah, they're, they've been, um, so it, it's been, you know, back and forth. Uh, I think my relationships with my friends have been more of a casualty uh, sometimes. You know, I did date religious people in the past and mm -hmm. became a problem. I mean, one one of the exes I had, she was liberal religious and everything. And then she talked about, we started getting serious. And um, she just brought up, she's like, if you have a son, are you going to circumcise him? Because she said, what, what would you, if I want to raise the children religiously, would you be okay with it? And I said, yeah, oh, I don't care. You know, I was raised religiously. Like, eventually he's going to grow older and he's going to come to me and then, you know, I'll do my thing. It doesn't matter. <laughs> Classic dad yeah. move right there. <laughs> exactly. It's was, I was like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to lie to him about what I think. If he asks me questions, I'll tell him. And she's like, well, um, so you don't care. I can raise a kid anywhere I want to. And I was like, yeah. And she's like, what about, can I circumcise him? I said, no. I was like, that's torture. I, I, I don't, I don't want, there's no need for that. I mean, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a physician. I know this. It's medically unnecessary. He wants, I'm not. If he wants to get circumcised for religious reasons, when he's older, he can make that decision. It's like any surgery. You, you never do surgery on any other kind of surgery on a newborn but that for any kind of preventative reason, you know, hygiene reasons or preventing. You don't do surgery on them. Uh, so you know, it's like I, I am not against if you want to be circumcised, let him make the decision when he grows older. And then that became a sticking point. So uh, the, those kinds of things i mean they're very rare but sometimes those differences um do show up and they cost you issues i i don't know like it, it but it doesn't really bother me i think it bothers other people more yeah uh, did you ever like um because I'm, I'm assuming you probably got people sending you like bad messages and stuff like strangers and everything did that ever bother oh. you or do you just have a thick skin now no i have a very th i am look Anytime you're doing something different, and I, you have to know this ahead of time. If you get into this kind of work, or you're getting into activism, or you're getting, trying to get some ideas out there that are that go against the grain, you have to know that the vast majority, uh, initially, like the very first man, black man who went out there and said that I don't want to be segregated anymore. You know, I want equal rights. The vast majority of white people, and even many black people opposed him so if he had twitter then he would be canceled yeah that's all i'm saying the very very first feminist who said that yeah you know women should go outside of the house and they should work like 
everybody, if she had Twitter, everybody would be saying hashtag, you know, cancel her. Why is she saying that? You know, the majority of people were against women voting, including women, right? So yeah, yeah. anytime you do something different, the vast majority of people are going to oppose you. The problem is with social media, that majority just hits you like a ton of bricks in your yeah, notification yeah. and and you tend to, then you're like, oh, I have to apologize. Maybe I have to look at their point of view. It's like, no, just ignore what people are saying and keep pushing on. Like, don't, don't get distracted. If you think that what you're saying is right, yes, listen to constructive criticism, but don't listen to people who say, well, no, I'm really hurt by this. This is very offensive. Because guess what? Everybody in the past who brought any kind of revolutionary change in the history offended a lot of people, including Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, why was he crucified? Because, as Christians believe, because he pissed off a lot of people. He offended a lot of people. You know, Muhammad, you know, he's chased out of Mecca, you know, in fear of his death because he pissed off a lot of people. The very first Harvey Milk, you know, the big gay rights activist back in the day, he was murdered. Martin Luther King Jr. murdered. I mean, they, they, these people offended everybody, but every revolution starts off as a rebellion. You can't have it any other way. So you have to have a thick skin. Have I gotten death threats? I have, yes, like loads of them. Fortunately, not as many now, um, because I think things, that's another reason I'm optimistic, because I think things have changed. Um, but in the past, like when I first started doing this, man, like loads and loads of death threats. Right? Then I, I had to get, when the book came out, I got a, a very sort of high-tech security system for my house because you know, I was about to have a child as well. And so these things you have to consider and you have to be careful about, but you have to remember what's at stake. You know, the, the reason you do this is because I, I have a good friend of mine. His name is Raif Badawi. He is in prison in Saudi Arabia right now because he does exactly what I do. He writes, right? He wrote about not atheism. He wrote about secularism in Saudi Arabia and they threw him in jail for apostasy. Uh, they sentenced him to a thousand lashes. They actually did 50 of them. And then fortunately they stopped. And, um, his wife and his kids, they live uh, here in Canada. He hasn't seen them for seven years because he's in jail just because he wrote stuff on a website. Right? So wow. these are, yeah, you, you have to have a thick skin. Like if, if he can deal with that, you know, I think that I could probably deal with a few extra security measures. Man, um, that's, yeah. Uh, yeah, that's uh, very inspiring. Thanks for sharing that. Um, yeah, like how you compare to your friend in Saudi Arabia and like you, you use him to actually give yourself some strength. Uh, I'll do the same, man, because like, uh, hey, I like I started this podcast and even like uh, with all the positive uh, comments I got, like I do get some of that negativity coming back to me every once yeah. in a while. And uh, no, I'm going to use uh, your example, man, to like push through that. Uh, you got to believe in yourself and you got to believe in what your cause is and yeah, yep. push push through, man. Uh, thanks for sharing that, and you did it in a very uh, nice way. Uh, yeah, so uh, yeah, we're pretty much uh, close to the end here. Uh, do you want to? Um, do you have anything besides your book, uh, The Atheist Muslim, that you want to uh, promote? Um, no, not really. I can tell you, like, what I'm I'm working on a, a new book. This is an it's going to be a novel. Oh, um, sweet. Yeah, so it's also based on I guess the character in The Atheist Muslim would be me, but sort of modified. Um, who goes on a sort of Da Vinci Code-like journey nice. uh, to find out things. So it's like a, a sort of mystery thriller 
type, which means that we're plotting it right now. I'm writing with a, a uh, friend of mine uh, from medical school. Her name is Simi Rahman. So um, we're co-authoring it. So I'm very excited about that. Uh, you're not going to see it for <laughs> quite a while because it's still in the plotting stages. Uh, but uh, that's that's one thing I'm working on. I also have a podcast uh, called Secular Jihadists for a Muslim Enlightenment. Oh, um, awesome. Yeah, and you should come on that at some point, you know, because uh, we are uh, definitely, you know, we are looking. I just interviewed another uh, New York comedian uh, recently, stand-up comic, also a similar kind of background where he grew up in Houston with a Muslim family and, um, now he's an atheist, and uh, he's he's just a re he's he's a really really good comic. Oh, what's his name? So, Jafar Khan. Okay, haven't heard of Jafar Khan. Oh, yeah, okay, cool. yeah. So he's in New York now, um, and he's kind of making waves. He's still, he's coming up. And he's really good. Uh, so you know we've had him on the podcast. We've had a lot of uh, you know great. We had Mariam Namazi, who is the Council of Ex-Muslims of Britain. We've had Sam Harris on. We've had uh, Steven Pinker, who wrote Enlightenment Now. Oh, yeah. Uh, Great guys. Yeah, so we've had uh, Nick Cohen, the, the UK journalist. So We've had a lot of really, really uh, interesting guests and, and loads of um, sort of ex-Muslims and, and atheist, agnostic, secularist, liberal Muslims from around the world, um, you know, from Jordan, from Egypt, Saudi Arabia. We've got several people from Saudi Arabia coming on uh, to talk about that. They talk about their issues, Bangladesh, Pakistan, everything. So it's um, it's, it's something that I really like doing. It reaches a lot of people, and, and uh, you guys should definitely check it out. Um, I'm promoting my podcast on your podcast. Yeah, so I please say do, please do. <laughs> after you download all of the episodes of uh, God, Yay, or, or <laughs> I appreciate that. Uh, no, man, I would love to do your podcast, buddy. That sounds amazing. And uh, yeah. thank you so much for coming online. <laughs> yeah, of course, man. It was a pleasure. Hey, everybody. That was this week's episode. Thank you so much uh, for listening. I appreciate the support. The best way you can uh, support this podcast is by going on to Apple or iTunes and rating this podcast. Um, if you give it a good rating and leave a nice comment, honestly, that's the best way to do it. Uh, please check me out on Instagram or uh, YouTube under Newer Kidwai. I'm constantly going to be sharing clips of this podcast and also uh, telling you when new episodes are out and sharing a little bit of my comedy. So thank you so much uh, and uh, tune in to another episode next time on God, yay or nay.